everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. Hi. Hi. I'm Carrie. I'm Jack. I'm Dean. I'm, it's going to be a regular thing now. I'm going to talk about our favorite listeners who either give us a good review or send us an email or somehow. So today I'm going to talk about two. Okay. K, first initial, didn't get a first name. Last initial is F. This is somebody who is super knowledgeable about the whole Martin family disappearance. Oh, in Oregon. Yeah. Into the, Washington, into the river. Washington? Well, oh, on the border. Yeah. Anyhow. They know more, probably, than the Martin family knows about it. Well, the Martin family's (laughs) dead, so. But anyhow, thanks, Kay, for all of the info in the emails that you sent to me, us. Okay. But really just me, because I'm the one that reads them. (laughs) And then also Don H., I believe, from Kentucky, who probably isn't listening. (laughs) I'm pretty damn sure. Because they didn't like us very much. No. They were unhappy about, I think, me. Probably. <laughs> poking think? a little fun at Kentuckians. <laughs> I, I believe in the Hopkinsville yes. UFO yes. story. I would just like to say, Don, since you're not listening, I'm sorry. And I don't mean to be mean to any Kentuckians. It's a joke. If it was offensive, I honestly... Don't huh, say uh, if it was offensive. It was offensive. It was offensive to her, so I apologize. Or him or her. I think it's a her. I apologize. Didn't mean to offend. We never mean to offend, but we're just really yeah, having fun. People make fun of Californians all the time. No, I, I, Kentucky people are just as smart as anybody else in the country. <laughs> I'm 100% kidding whenever I tease my fellow Americans in Kentucky. It is stereotype jokes. It totally is. And it's lazy stereotype. And yes, be it is. First to admit that for sure. We're pretty lazy. Yeah. Well, okay, <laughs> at least about that anyway. So. Can't guarantee it won't happen again. <laughs> oh, but, it will definitely happen again. But I'll try not to. I'll be better. But we also, you know, pretty much make fun of, or, you know. Tease. Sure. Gentle ribbing. What, what, whatever. I mean, good, good Lord. I don't even think we're kidding when we talk about Texas. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, I am, just for the record. <laughs> At least Texas the government. is great. Great university system. Do they? A lot they? of great people. Absolutely. What do they allow? Real books? I don't. I'm not talking about the, the uh, K through twelve. Not yeah. so much. But um, yes, the university <laughs> systems A one. University of Texas at Austin, a, a great research university. I know, and a lot of smart people there. I know many Texans. Every Texan I know personally, I like. Well, you know, and at one time they did elect Dan Richardson as their governor. There you go. They could always go back to their good old ways. Anyway, okay, so <laughs> that takes care of you know. <laughs> you should have done one good, one bad, one good. That two is enough. Okay, all right. So, Dean, what yes. you gonna talk about? I am going to talk about animals today. Hmm. I'm gonna start with saying that the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, also known as the ASPCA has been around since 1866. Did you know that? Holy moly, I did not know that. I did not either. Seems like a lot longer than I would have expected. Its inspiration, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in Great Britain, goes back to 1824. Wow. It was given official royal status in 1840. Whatever that means. I have no idea that means to be officially royal. So I'm going to ask a dumb question. Okay. What animal cruelty were they concerned with? Like, Livestock? Probably. Yeah, horses. I don't think so much pets. I don't know, maybe, but probably horses and and livestock. Yeah. Huh. 
I'm I'm completely guessing. On well, that that's point, good. Probably, yeah, it was yeah, earlier than I would have thought. That I'm anti-animal cruelty as well. Wow, taking a bold <laughs> stance there, Carrie. That's brave of you. You're, you know what? You don't like to use the word hero, or True. courage, or courageous, but you know, it fits. They've done good work. Veterinarians associated with ASPCA, for instance, developed anesthesia for animals in 1918. If you're wondering when anesthesia for humans was invented, it was decades before that. So it took a little (laughs) while, but eventually they were able to operate on horses and things like that under anesthetic. Thanks to the ASPCA. Sure. They've also funded or they've run many animal shelters. They facilitated countless pet adoptions. And they've all, for many years now, urged us to spay and neuter our pets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they did good work. We got one of our pets through the SPCA. ASPCA, I'm assuming we're in America. So. No, it was a county name and oh, then was SPCA. It? Okay, all right. No A. Okay, sorry about that. It's all right. Recently, they have advocated the end of horse-drawn carriages in New York City. Good. Just New York City? They're very active in New York City. And yeah. I, I don't know there's a lot of... They're, they're founded in New York. The well, ASPCA, we have them in so. our... Uh, yeah, I was going to say they're literally old in Old Town, town Sacramento. Yeah. yeah, but if you do that in New York City and Manhattan, that would break the hearts of many tourists who, I mean. I'm okay with that. I mean, that, the horse-drawn carriages, carriages in New York City are kind of like getting a soft pretzel from one of those corner kiosks, and they taste <laughs> just as good, by the way, as the horses. So it's, it's a tradition. And uh, Listen, some traditions can go in the trash. I suppose. Are you, yeah, we did one, and it was not like that you really interesting. Care about it? No, yeah, really. I'm okay with it going away. I'm okay. okay with it going away here. Me too. Okay, agreed. Yeah, they're terrible. Tabled. Motion is. I don't know what that means. Carried. Carried. That's it. That's <gasps> Carried. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, by the way, in case you're wondering, some people might be the ASPCA is not the same thing as PETA, the people for the oh, ethical God. treatment of animals. Yes. Important distinction. Very important, because no ASPCA member, as far as I know, has ever tried to link milk to autism or thrown blood at a model wearing a fur coat, as far as I know. And yes, the PETA did try to link milk to autism. It's scientifically not true. Huh. It's pretty, just because they're anti-dairy and they're, they're, they're a vegan group. Pretty uh, scummy. So... Despite decades, though, of concern for animals, the ASPCA and similar organizations have been unable to stop all of the terrible things that we have done to animals over the years. And today we're going to talk about some of those things. I want to stress, if you care deeply about animals, as we do, some of these items may be, you know, uncomfortable, but nothing here is going to be super graphic at all. I'm not going to do anything about experimentation no, or vivisection or anything like that. I thought this was going to be a happy topic. It is. Topic. For the most Look part, it is. It's <laughs> not completely. <laughs> for the most part, it's kind of funny, weird, strange things we humans have done for all animals right. in the name of science. Okay. Okay. Better be- trust me on this. I'm not going to. I swear to God, nothing's graphic, nothing experimentation at all. Nothing also, like we can't move forward if we don't. Look back at, back at what we've done and mend our ways. Wow. You change better. your tune real quick. She suddenly became extremely <laughs> philosophical. Did you notice that? Wow. Very well, sage-like. It, it's okay. kind of an issue that's very topical right okay. now All right. in All right. schools like in Texas. Okay. <laughs> what is your problem with Texas all of a sudden? Well. We cannot. Google it. Okay. We'll Google it. Google it, everybody. Google. Just Google <laughs> Texas and go go with it. Let's start with, I think, something we can all agree on, which is that we would love to know if it's going to rain or not. Wouldn't you? 
Mm, it's not high on my priority oh, like, issues on. in my life. You're going outside. Well, maybe not yeah. yours, but the I agricultural know. community it is. And people who have to Definitely. go outside. And also, we live in California. We're drought prone. I know. It should be we high are. on your list of priorities. Yeah, Carrie. I, I think we I have know, fairly I, attacked you here. I don't need to manipulate animals to tell me. I mean, I'm assuming well, it's going to come down to animals. Maybe we'll see. Today, of course, <laughs> we have weather apps that tell us things like there's a 40% chance of rain, which doesn't that, it seems like it's probably not going to rain. But when they say it's a 40% chance of rain, it's very, very likely to rain. Very counterintuitive, AccuWeather. Stop with the percents. Just say you have three things. Say, yeah. It's almost certainly going to rain, or it might rain, but very likely not, or in the middle, which is we don't know because that's usually the right right answer. So I'm, I'm, oh, oh, and also stop with those little raindrops that you count under the cloud on the day, like two drops or four drops, because I don't know what the difference between two drops and four drops is, and I don't think you do either. Yeah, I do. The more drops, the harder it's going to rain. Whatever. Harder? Are you kidding me? Really? The more rain there will be. More power behind those drops? No. Mm. The more drops per square inch, bitch. Yes, Dean. Good Lord. Sounds like sorcery to me. You don't spend a whole lot of time out in the rain when it does rain. No, he's afraid of wet. (laughs) Not at all. I love the rain. I'm very (gasps) pro rain. What are you talking about? As Jack just said, this is a drought stricken yes, land. Dean. I'm very much in but favor But you're of a little bit delicate when there's rain. What is happening? That's not true at all. <laughs> it is absolutely no, true. Who wanted to take the dogs out for a walk when it was pouring rain and who didn't? Who I want lasagna? My case. <laughs> That's the one exception and it's weird. Mm. Anyway. Weird. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. in 19th century England, they did not have weather apps. Not yet, anyway. No, I, no. yeah. They didn't have any apps, really. Well, maybe they, appetizers. They had mozzarella they sticks. They thanks did. for that tidbit of knowledge. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, thanks to a man named George Merriweather, though. Oh, uh, perfect. They had leeches. <gasps> oh, tiger leeches? I don't know. The okay. kind of leeches you find in England. Okay, so what, how did these leeches tell us when it's going to rain? Okay. Gary <laughs> just like wants to end this, apparently. I'll be getting to that. According to Merriweather, leeches could tell us when it was going to rain. In total seriousness, this, yeah. this is a thing. So Merriweather was a doctor. He was also the curator of the Whitby Literary and Philosophical Society and its museum in, in Whitby. That's a town situated on the coast of Yorkshire. I guess that'd be in northeastern England. Okay. okay. As a doctor, he was naturally quite familiar with leeches because as you know they used to use leeches for medicine back then and today yeah today back then they usually did more harm than good well yes that's true you know took blood out of your system when you desperately needed it because you had leukemia or something like that i don't know if leukemia but (sighs) no anything they drained blood for when you needed blood got a tummy ache pretty (laughs) leeches (laughs) leech them slide them open yep that's what happens, though, Though, when a society ignores science in favor of tradition and superstition. Hint, hint, society. I'm just saying. Sorry, social commentary. Merriweather had noticed that leeches appeared to react to weather conditions. Specifically, he thought they responded to electrical conditions in the atmosphere. Electric? Yeah. And he also remembered this poem. I don't know which came first, his observation or this poem. It was by Edward Jenner. Does that oh, ring a bell? Yeah. Yes, it does, baby he, smallpox. He was the pioneer of vaccinations who invented the first vaccine for smallpox. He was also a poet. 
believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. And he wrote a book of poetry. One of those poems was called Signs of Rain, in which mm. he basically said, here are some things that signify the potential for rain. Here's the snatch of Jenner's poem that Meriwether sort of uh, hold snippet. Up. <laughs> so I saw, Is that oh. the snippet? Snatch is not a good thing? No, I wasn't sure what you meant. Okay. <laughs> well, you heard that phrase? That's a phrase. No. People that, say that. No. That's a snatch of a poem, a little bit of a snippet. Same thing. It's synonymous with snippet, snatch. That, that's a vagina of a poem. For sure. You've never heard that? That's Carrie the snorting. pussy of the poem. God, I don't, I'm pretty sure. Look it up. Google it. Google Texas and snatch. Google Texas snatch. Okay. See the, what happens. The non-dirty meaning of snatch is to like... Grab. Yes. yes. Which, <laughs> so, I, I could I be mixing it. it up with snippet in a literal sense, but I don't know. Excerpt. This is an excerpt. I think you did. Let's just delete this entire thing. So, no. Oh, my God. No, we're not deleting Carrie's snorting. That's for damn sure. So here's the snippet of Jenner's poem, the word police over here, who's... Oh, bitch. Has, thought, don't act like we that's outlandish. I we were just going to completely ignore it. Uh-uh. Go right on by. I was letting him finish the sentence, but I was going to jump. Okay, I'm never going to say snatch again. <laughs> Quote. Ready? Oh, my stomach hurts now. Quote. The leech disturbed is newly risen, quite to the summit of his prison. That's what Jenner wrote. Uh-huh. There was one of many couplets, by the way, in his book, in his poem, I'm sorry, his poem called Sign of Rain. By the way, the subtitle, of the poem Signs of Rain was, quote, an excuse for not accepting the invitation of a friend to make a country excursion. <laughs> it, oh. it sounds a lot like more like a public apology than it does a poem. <laughs> Honestly. But he had these little couplets that said, here's Which some we, things yeah. that, uh, that indicate rain. He, he mentioned peacocks caterwauling. Ooh, well, pale yeah, sunsets, which I what think sunset? pale sunsets pale. That is a sign of rain, apparently. And also, quote, snorting Clouds. swines could also be a, a <laughs> sign of an impending storm. Girl, then it, uh, storms are always a coming because yeah. yeah. that's yeah. just what the swine do. And peacocks caterwauling. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I that's also what they do. He was a vaccine scientist. So yeah, not a naturalist. Maybe not a meteorologist. Yeah. For some reason, Meriwether focused on the leeches part of the poem, right? I mean, he thought it meant that leeches, leeches reacted to the disturbances in the weather that humans could not detect, and so we could use leeches to predict the onset of bad weather. I mean, honestly, you it's know? not the craziest thing I've ever it's heard. Not nutty. Animals have a lot of senses that we don't. Yeah. Although they still Birds. haven't proved the whole earthquake thing that animals, you know, or, or the tsunami thing, right? Where supposedly yeah. animals are running to high ground. Right. No, but birds literally have quantum mechanics yeah, built into them. So they they can have magnetic, grab right? They can, That's the they can read the magnetic yeah. field or Earth to go whatever thousands of miles yeah. away and things like that. North so and south. Smart and south asses. and north. So we'll get to birds. Don't worry. We'll, I like we'll, birds. <laughs> Trust me. We'll get to birds. So in 1850, yeah. Meriwether went to work. He eventually came up with six designs for this device that he called an atmospheric electromagnetic telegraph conducted by animal instinct. Huh. I'm surprised he chose electromagnetism to focus on for the yeah. leeches. Not well, like, I don't know, pressure. Something a little bit more I basic. I don't know if they had a barometer by then or not. They may have. That's true. They probably did. They, they did. probably, they did. probably yeah. did. Pretty catchy name, though. I, very. I, yeah. That would probably fly off the shelves onto carts at Amazon Not right these days. Yeah. I want one. Uh, I kind of do, too. Actually, I do. The varieties were based on cost. So we had six varieties going from cheap to very ornate. The cheap ones, he thought, would be inexpensive and would be perfect for it. like government and shipping, like mass-produce these things. Everybody would have these leech machines hey, in their office work. to see if it's raining. The ultimate 
version, the, the really top end version that he made was actually really artistic. It was this elaborate design that I, it was presumably, he thought, I guess that would be for what, ostentatious rich people who wanted to know if they needed to bring an umbrella with them because <laughs> it would be very yeah. expensive to make a number of these. Fancy people yeah. who like better have, things. Yeah, if you're going to have it in your house, it better be I suppose. pretty and decorative. Okay, all right. That elaborate version, though, he designed to be reminiscent of an Indian temple and he planned on showing it at the Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace in London's Hyde Park, set for later in the year in 1851. It was going to be his big, you know, release to the mass public. Yeah. Hmm. He kind of wanted a warm-up, though. So here he's in Whitby, smaller town, and he figured he'd present it to his fellow folks at the Philosophical Society at Whitby in February of 1851. They had a little gathering. He would present it there. He did this by way of a three-hour reading of an essay that Holy extolled shit. the virtues of his new device. Oh, man. I would have said, listen, at hour two, uh, you're getting me cut the fuck uh, off. 11 minutes, dude, <laughs> yeah. at the most. I That's mean, I, people tend to talk a lot at yeah. those kind of things. Oh, I, 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 but I, damn... As we've said before on the show here, before the advent of the internet and television, people did crazy-ass things like going to three-hour essays, obscure topics, voluntarily for entertainment. Yeah. That's... Now we have TikTok. (laughs) Maybe we've gone a little backwards. Uh -uh, I'd rather have TikTok. That shit sounds so boring and pretentious. (laughs) He called his presentation, quote... An essay explanatory of the Tempest Prognosticator and the building of the great exhibition for the works of industry of all nations. So he was very humble. He was My God. Very, very to the point. But at least now we had a name for the device, the Tempest Prognosticator, which basically means storm predictor. Yep. Yes. It was a fascinating machine. Let me explain. Meriwether's Tempest Prognosticator was a circle of English pint bottles situated around this ornate bell at the top. And it's not just like a, a bell like you think. It, was, it had a, 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 you know, think of it more of like, almost like a dome kind of a, a shape, but very, like, it, it, again, it looked sort of like an Indian temple. Okay. The glass bottles were all connected by little metal tubes stuck in a whalebone stopper at the top of the bottle. And these tubes were then attached to wires that led up to hammers that could strike the bell above them, right? Uh-huh. So it, but over, the whole contraption was over three feet tall and it's made of mahogany, silver, and brass. So like I said, it was very, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful machine. There's, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's a replica that survives to this day. After letting the assemble to get a good look at his device, Meriwether set it to work. So he poured rainwater into each of the 12 bottles. He thought that about an inch and a half of the water was enough. So he goes around, pours an inch and a half of rainwater in all of the 12 bottles. He then dropped a live leech into all 12 bottles of Just one. the rainwater. Just one in each bottle. So he had 12 total. So now came the prognostication part. Okay. Meriwether figured that when the leeches sensed an electric disturbance in the atmosphere, that presaged rain. They thought they would do what leeches do in nature. He thought they would move upward through the hollow metal tubes toward the tops of the bottles, right? When they reached the top, they would dislodge that whalebone. That would in turn, so that whalebone little stopper would drop 
and that would pull a, a wire that would then ring the bell. Ring the bell with the hammer. It would ring the bell. And it's kind of like a mousetrap sort of a sort of a yeah. way, I guess. Yeah. Rube Goldberg with leeches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can picture it. Yeah. So yeah. And we'll have pictures on there are pictures of it. We'll we'll put those on our social media. He thought that the leeches would do this because in nature, again, leeches moved toward the surface of the pond or wherever they lived when it was about to rain. They thought it'd be easier to feed on some delicious scrumptious blood. At the when I, I'm I'm not sure how that's true. Yeah. But that appears to be true. Huh. Or why that's true, I don't know. What animals collect at the surface of yeah. a pond during rain? Or, and that actually, he thought before just... it rained. So at some period before yeah. it rained, like they, were, they felt the atmospheric disturbance. It was going to rain, so they went to the top to get ready for food when it rained. I don't, I'm hmm. not 100% sure how that works. Do hmm. deer just... sense rain, and they're like, let me go get a drink. And the leech is <laughs> like, me too, I'm yeah. going to get a drink of uh, your you know blood. What? I don't Maybe. know. Like Maybe, that. yeah. Yeah, I guess. Ecology is very complex, mm -hmm. but that sounds a bit far-fetched. Well, this made his 12 leeches kind of a jury, and he actually called them his, quote, jury of philosophical counselors. Oh, my God. This man just likes yeah. to talk about everything <laughs> in the most arcane terms. Uh, so when a leech felt that the onset of bad weather was upon them, they would rise to the top, ring the bell, and someone, I guess, attending to this machine would note this. The more leeches that rang the bell, the more certain you were that the rain was on the way. So this is, honestly, this is why we invented the word genius. This is phenomenal. <laughs> he, you know, if you had eight or nine or ten rings, okay. It's a it's dead certainty. Yeah. If you had one or two, mm, not so, maybe, it's not maybe so not. much. Merriweather tested his device for about a year. All throughout 1850, he was testing it, preparing for his his unveiling. During this period, he would fire off a letter to a guy named Henry Belcher, who was the Whitby Institute head, predicting a storm whenever his leeches had told him a storm was on the way. Hmm. He wrote 28 of those letters over oh, the course Lord. of 1850, and he claimed he was very successful. Mm. We'll talk about that in a second. Some leeches, he said, were really, really good prognosticators. Others, he wrote, were, quote, absolutely stupid. <laughs> Because that's how it works. <laughs> well, that is the reason he had the committee approach. That's why he settled on having lots of leeches. So you yeah. no. can, you know, kind of filter out the dummies. See, yeah. You'd really filter out the dummies and get all the good ones in. <laughs> you would think. Over time, Meriwether grew attached to his leeches, and <laughs> they grew attached to him. Pun. Actually, they did not. He said that after he had handled them for a while, they'd rarely try to bite him anymore. And that, quote... Some of them have, over and over again, thrown themselves into graceful undulations when I have approached them, I suppose as an expression of their being glad to see me. That's bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't know if I buy that. I don't yeah. either. It's a man and his leeches. I mean, a lot of people who own story. leeches do let them feed off of them. That's weird. Personally. <laughs> I don't like it. And people, yeah. I mean, it's a thing. We yeah, don't. We don't. Just don't, don't do it. No. We don't appear to have any statistics, though, so we don't know exactly how accurate he really was and yeah. his leeches really were. But Ask he thought the they were great. What about the guy who, who was the letters, letters there's, to? There's no, apparently, nothing I read said anything about, hmm. oh, he was right 21, another 28 times, whatever. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe huh. that guy was just like, oh, my God, another letter from this asshole and tossed <laughs> it away. I don't know. Yeah. So he thought, though, that his device was going to save thousands of lives. L lives? Yeah, absolutely. He wanted... He <laughs> thought, <laughs> He thought that they could put a bunch of them along the whole coast of England and 
oh, warn whenever a storm is going to hit hit the island. Well, were people dying of rain a lot? Absolutely. Oh, girl floods in those Come little low lying islands. Absolutely, sure. Let's they'll assume. Get let's assume yes. I don't know. Oh, they'll get you. He admitted, however, that he could not predict yes. the direction of the storm and the timing, only that it would be, quote, soon. So how useful? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't see how this is going to save lives. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm skeptical yeah. of that, too. Neither did anyone else, because sadly, Meriwether pleaded with the British government to buy a bunch of devices and, again, empl- deploy yeah. them all over the country to, to tell about the weather. The government instead went for a thing called a storm glass invented by Robert Fitzroy. Fitzroy was a naval officer. He had been governor of New Zealand. And more famously, he was the captain of the HMS Beagle. Oh. Aww. That transported Charles Darwin, Darwin on his epic voyage of evolutionary discovery. Fitzroy was also an early meteorologist, and he developed this thing called a storm glass. It's basically a glass filled with a fluid, a fluid uh-huh. made of like camphor and water and other devi- that was supposed to change color and cloudiness and there's a whole table of, if it does this, then this is the kind of weather that's coming. Yeah. If it does this, this is kind Damn. of the weather that's coming. It was almost like an early mood ring, I guess. And it's <laughs> absolutely just as useful because it was complete bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not surprising. So, But you didn't have to have any leeches to make it run, so that was handy. Also contributing to the decision to not buy a bunch of tempers prognosticators by the British government may have been the fact that Meriwether claimed a great success in October 1950 when he predicted a major storm would hit Whitby. 1850, you mean? 1850, I'm sorry, 1850. He predicted a big storm. It happened 51 hours after his pronouncement. To him, that was like, nailed it. Oh, my God. So maybe people didn't think that was quite as spot on as he thought. Although by the standards of the time, that's probably not terrible. Then again, it's in England. Just say, it's going to rain if it rains in the next two plus days. You're right now. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. In October. It's going to be sunny within the next three days, guys. <laughs> October in Yorkshire. Yeah. I'm assuming. I don't know. I'm not looking at a chart right now, but I'm assuming there's quite a bit of rain. Sadder still, though, somewhere over the years, that original elaborate device was lost. Oh. Someone, however, made a replica in 1951 for the 100th anniversary of his showing, and that was displayed in some event they had then. I can't remember. There are even some replicas around today. One of them makes an annual appearance at the Great Dickens Christmas Fair in San Francisco. So maybe one day we'll go see a Tempest Prognosticator. We have a Dickens Fair here. I wonder if it'll ever come here. Doubtful. (laughs) I don't know why you'd connect the two, but no. Well, I I feel like Dickens is well known about it. Yes, (laughs) Mr. Charles loved it here. We love the Tempest Prognosticator. So that's the Tempest Prognosticator. Now we're going to move on to number two. We're going to do three here, by the way, in Okey-dokes. part one. It's going to be two. I don't know if I said anything up front. There'll be two parts of this. We've got six stories. We have three here today. The second one we have is, well, we're going to go underground now. <gasps> Moles. No. Oh. Mining, as we all know, is a very dangerous occupation. Oh. Miners have to fear things like cave-ins, mm-hmm. rock falls, flooding for sure. Oof. They also must be wary of poison gases. Yes. Ding dong. These are caused by things that they bring down with them into the mines. Are we going to sing or a song? What song would that be? I don't know. Hi ho. If I had a hammer, what song? What song do you want to sing here? I'm not going to sing it now because it's going to give it away. Okay. Copyright. Okay. Oh, I know what song you're thinking of. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> oh, good guess. In the olden days, the most dangerous gas was. Oh, that one's carbon monoxide. Hunted. CO. CO was caused by the explosives 
that miners use to dig new ore veins. You know, they, they basically put yeah. dynamite into TNT. the rock. They chiseled the rock, put dynamite in, and exploded the whole shaft and saw what was there. It also was caused by the exhaust from oil-powered machines and engines yeah. down yeah. there in the mine. So lots of bad gases there. And, of course, adequate ventilation in these mines was expensive. You had to dig holes, little holes, all yeah. the way up to the, to the top. And mine owners have not always been known for being super people people. Really? No, they have not, hmm. it turns out, oddly enough. Yeah, Elon... He's a mining person? Is oh, is an heir of it. Emerald mine. Oh, is he really? In South, yeah, in South Africa, Africa, baby. Africa. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, Bloody shocker. dollars. Carbon monoxide is colorless and odorless. Yes, it is. It's the scary one. It wow. starts out, it causes some dizziness at first, and then maybe you get a little headache, and then you have shortness of breath. But it can act really fast, and it can kill you. It kills you by suffocation. It replaces, right, the oxygen molecules in your in your uh, blood. And so before the miner could fully understand what was happening, he was in trouble. Yeah. So it was bad. I mean, first the government had stopped letting mining companies use young children to mine. So now they had to dig taller tunnels. That was bullshit. And now you had toxic gases killing their miners with pretty much some regularity. Something had to be done. Yeah. So in Great Britain, where coal mining was a massive part of the economy, something was done by a guy named John Scott Haldane. He was on the case. One of the sources I read, by the way, says Haldane is known to some as the father of oxygen therapy. What? So I imagine by the word some, they mean people directly involved in the oxygen therapy industry because no one else knows who the hell the father of oxygen therapy is. Sorry. Just, I don't know why you'd think that. Haldane thought there must be animals out there that are more sensitive to toxic gases than humans are. He called this, he, an animal like this, he called a sentinel species. Uh-huh. uh-huh. That's a different... <laughs> Why? Is well, that... sentinel species is, is a thing in, like, epidemiology. What does it mean? Oh, because they... Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? They're, they're mm. going to show you the effects of, of that disease yeah. for human population, right? Kind, yeah, kind of. Ecology in general, not always. Okay. Just well, that's how, how he used it to mean something that would sh- show the effects of right. toxic yeah. gases before humans would be harmed. <clears throat> it's a so, little, little less sacrificial yeah, these yeah. days. <laughs> if you brought one of these creatures down into the mines and, and it keeled over dead, there'd still be time for human miners to get the hell out mm-hmm. of the tunnels before the carbon monoxide oh, or whatever toxic killed gas it, yeah. killed them. That Poor was the bodies. idea. Yeah, birds are very sensitive. It turns out birds are a great (laughs) sentinel species. Now, you guessed it. Birds generally have, they have very fast metabolisms. You said it. But they also, they take in tremendous amounts of oxygen because they have to fly and do things like that. And they have tiny little lungs. So Uh, they, and I didn't know this. Bunch of lungs. Did you know they actually absorb oxygen both on intake and the exhale? Well, they do it at the same time. Well, oh, really? Yeah, they, one-way breathing. They have, a, they have little, it said they have little air. Sacks. They hold air in extra sacks. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. This is according to an article in Gizmodo. It's we don't need to talk about the science right now, mainly because <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> it's but, true. Uh, they have, like, instead of just, like, two lungs that kind of inflate at the same time, I think they have a bunch of different independent air sacs throughout their body that can sort of do this. Exhaling and inhaling at the same time. Really? Very efficient. Yeah. Wow. So, they're, so, they're, so they're taking just a ton of, for their body size, yeah. tremendous amounts of oxygen. Flying mm. is very yeah. energy hungry. So, yes. Yeah. That's birds, right? Boards. Canaries are birds. Parrot. Mm. They're also they're small. <laughs> they were also plentiful. Miners could have used mice 
But that double dose of oxygen in the canary or the small bird meant it could detect toxicity in the air before a mammal, a little little mammal, yeah. could yeah. do so. So effectively, canaries were an earlier, early warning system than some other small, easily transportable mammal, which was the first thought they had. Mice, Makes actually. Sense. I mean, lucky for mice. I know, right? Unluckily for mice, they have proved very popular for animal experimentation since they breed really fast. Yeah. And at least when they're albinos, they have those scary, satanic-looking red eyes that make them much less cute, <laughs> and we don't care about them, sadly. So canaries, as this early detection system was actually adopted officially in 1911 by British miners. It became all the rage. So the canaries really? in the coal mine yeah. became a thing I in 1911. I would have thought so, too. Wait, you like, said 1911? 1911. Yeah. I thought I would have thought yeah. this was like early industrial so revolution type shit. Yeah. The, the sources I read said this was a, became hmm. a thing in 1911. Uh, Haldane figured this out, and it was instituted around 1911. Interesting. I don't know. That, that is later than I thought too. Yeah. I wonder if maybe certain miners here and there had thought of it and maybe. started doing similar things yeah. before then, but not on with a maybe mass mice. way. Yeah. At this point, anyway, huh. quickly spread from Britain to U.S. and Canada and elsewhere, and became a pretty common. Thing in mines. In fairness, sometimes the birds could be resuscitated after evacuation oh. with oh, miners. No. They even had special cages to resuscitate the birds. <laughs> really? But yeah, oh, all too often though, yeah, they died heroes, oh. saving human beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor little babies. 1986 marked the last canary used in a coal mine Seriously? in Britain. Yep. Holy cow. Are you surprised? It wasn't until then that researchers yeah, had perfected bit. a non-living gas detector called, in quote, electric nose. This is a digital device that they could bring down and see what the level of toxicity was in the atmosphere. So the British government mandated they stop using canaries, and they had to buy these electric noses and use them instead. Wow, 1986. 1986, yep. Holy moly. And that was when they were, you know, set free. Or probably not. Mm. But they could have yeah. been adopted because... They probably were adopted because yeah. many miners were kind of wistful about oh, the end of this canary in coal mines era uh. that one told BBC, quote, they are so ingrained in the culture, miners report whistling to the birds and coaxing them as they work, oh treating them as pets. About yeah. to say that. Yeah. <laughs> they did whistle a little fucking miner shanty to the bird and the wood bird go beep, 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 beep. Yeah. So they're like pets, <laughs> pets that were purposely put in harm's way to save themselves. So that's, yeah. I don't know, that's not a great Animals and humans have had a complicated relationship. That's true. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I'm not that <laughs> upset about it, to be honest. <laughs> Carrie's had a mini stroke. I think she's okay now, though. <laughs> raise, your, raise your right arm. Do you smell burnt toast? You all right? Smile for me. Okay. Oh, okay. oh. oh. Don't smile. Smile with both sides of your mouth. Okay. Jeez. There we go. So <laughs> the practice, though. <laughs> wait. Oh, wait. The 1980s in Britain also brought to an end the use of pit ponies. Oh, that just sounds bad. It, these were the small horses that they brought down to the mines to pull the carts filled with, oh. I guess, rock ore, back-breaking work that humans couldn't do very well, and they would do it for years and years and years. And as Carrie is going to tell us now, we, I think we actually talked about this when we, we were, did the episode, the little mini episode on the scary hospital. Oh, did we? The abandoned, I think we did, but we were in Nevada City recently and what, what did we learn we did, we did a, a mine tour mm -hmm. a gold mine tour and we learned that they take donkeys down mm -hmm. yeah into the mines and, and they have to sedate them 
at, at to two get years them, old. Remember? To get them down there, yep, yeah. when they're about two years old. And then they basically live their entire lives down in the mine until they're age like 18 20, or something. Age 20, 18 oh. years. At age yeah. 20, they would, if they're still alive, which I have to think was rare, they were brought back up and allowed to fall like live in, the in pasture. a pla- pasture, yeah. yeah. Yikes. So pit ponies were still a thing. In, in also into the mid-1980s in Britain, British coal mines. <sighs> Yikes, come on, yeah, so, y'all. Yeah, what the, well, you know. You had machines. machines. There's really yeah. no excuse. I don't, I, I don't know that they were common, but they were apparently still yeah. a thing. And That's they terrible. Them. And I, I, how how could a mammal live underground? I, it's, I, yeah, vitamin D. For so long. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know. Jonase. See, that's, that's cruel. I have a I, yes, humongous problem with that more so than the canaries. Wow. More so than the canaries? Yeah. I have mammalist. an equal problem, Carrie is a really. mammalist. She's a mammalist. What the hell? She didn't care about birds. Well, the... Just because they're dinosaurs. They die scary. all the, the time. But the donkeys aren't down there to save lives. Didn't the you have a canary? Were. I had a cockatiel. Oh, okay. Listen, budgies deserve just as much. Sure, but it's to save human lives. Oh, my God. So if it's to save a human life, everything else is expendable? I didn't say everything. (laughs) Just some things. Just some other, yeah. This is getting uncomfortable. Let's move on. (laughs) I disagree. The British government gave miners a year to phase out their use of canaries when they passed that legislation. At the time, there were still 200 canaries in use. How many? 200. You mean 200? (laughs) That's the proper pronunciation. I knew. God, Carrie doesn't miss anything. She's vicious. Where was she got that shit from? Not me. I'm getting back at you for Don H. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, fair enough. Those 200. You want to know how many of those 200 were like I don't know soldiers at the end of a lost war, just trying to hang on for the uh, last year and live through and get to the other side, so they could live in a cage in someone's living room, pooping on newspaper and drinking water from that little tube at the end of a bottle. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is not what birds drink. <laughs> I don't know what do birds drink out of then. What a, what? a bowl of Does water? I really bowl, you put a bowl? You They're not no, gerbils. I'm going <laughs> <run it. laughs> I bet rats. you can train a bird to drink have, out of a little tube. Why not? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I'm not they sure. had a tongue a, like a, that. A little metal ball in there. Yeah, having some delicious bird seed. Num num num. Better than being in a mine waiting to die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least. Mm-hmm. Now we move on to our last item of this episode. For this one, we start with a man named Burris Frederick Skinner. Yep. What was Ooh. he better known as? Uh, Mr. B.F. Skinner. Skinner. Oh. Yeah, B.F. Skinner, the psychologist, the famed behavioralist. He was, yep. His name was Burris Frederick, hence B.H., a B.F. Oh. <laughs> he was famous for believing that we are all creatures of behavioral <laughs> habit. We will react in predictable ways to external stimuli. Essentially, he felt that what happened outside you was more important than what happened inside you. I just succinctly explained behavioralism right there. Huh. More or less. To show this, behavioralists like Ivan Pavlov, mm-hmm. remember him, the famous dog experiments? They used animals, didn't they? Yep. With Which the, is funny, because, I mean, we are animals, but we're different than animals. Not that much. We can be conditioned. Yes, we can. Yes, mm-hmm. but there's a lot mm-hmm. of differences. Fox News has proven that. Anyway, with the right stimuli, animals could be trained to do amazing things in predictable ways. Pavlov, of course, did this with his dogs. When World War II came around, Skinner, a patriotic American, thought he needed to think of a way to use animals 
and conditioning to help the Allies win the war. Let me explain. Hmm. The Allies came to have a pretty decided advantage in the air as the war dragged on. The German Luftwaffe was very, very powerful yeah. in the beginning. But like 1943-44, with the U.S. in the war, uh, there was a kind of an air advantage. And so the Allies had been conducting some pretty effective bombing raids. They could be, you know, they terrorized the population, and, and they also took out military installations and things like that. But the Allies thought, you know, this could be so much more effective if we could just find a reliable way to guide the bombs and missiles rather than just flying over target and, and I don't know, being, you know, flying a certain speed and a certain height and kind of hope for the best as you drop a whole slew of bombs, right? Yikes. The military, that is, they wanted to be able to, to aim their missiles. They want the, more precision in killing absolutely, people. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's where Skinner came in. Skinner, who at the time was still a fairly young psychology professor at the University of Minnesota, he went to the National Research Defense Committee and he said, I have an idea. The committee was not super sold on his idea, but they thought enough about it that they said, what the hell, we've got plenty of money, here's $25,000, go see what you can do. Damn. They were trying to win a war. I guess. And he was, you know, he was not super well-known by this point. He hadn't become really famous yet, but he was a, a respected academic. Mm -hmm. And he had a pretty cool idea, as you'll see in a second here. Skinner's scheme was all about pigeons. Oh, pigeons. As my grad school friend Adam called <laughs> pigeons. <laughs> yes. Rats as of the sky, <laughs> some people call them. I mean. Oh, they, they're nasty. I'm not a huge oh, pigeon fan. Oh, what do you fan. mean? You motherfucker. You take that back immediately. Pig. Their little noise, their little coo. <laughs> the coo is, is so pretty cute. cute. I don't lie about that. Okay, that's true. A, a bird's a bird's a bird. A dove uh, is a pigeon. No. Yeah. No, a bird is not a bird. As a bird is a yes. bird. No. Well, I They're all fascinating. Thing. Agreed. I really like birds. But ravens and crows are much, much smarter, smarter than smarter. birds. Smarter. They are smarter. Yeah. <laughs> they are a hundred times smarter, <laughs> yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> Skinner had used pigeons in his research before. He had trained them to press levers with their beaks to get food, for instance, as part of his you know, operational conditioning. See? Mm -hmm. One day, according to Skinner, he was looking up in the sky and he saw a flock of birds flying in formation and kind of moving as one as if responding to invisible commands. So he thought, Eureka. He thought suddenly birds could be used as devices. He thought of them as uh, devices, as a matter of fact. Listen, he said, this Skinner. Is, he was inspired, okay? They were maneuverable. They were fast. They had great vision. And as he knew, they could be trained. So naturally, he thought, quote, could they not guide a missile? Was the answer to the problem waiting for me in my own backyard? Unquote. <laughs> Pigeon-guided <laughs> missiles. That's what BF thought. So, you know, he thought birds can do these things. He thought the best bird for this was pigeons. Again, he had, he had experience with pigeons. He could train them, and he thought they were smart. They also mm -hmm. had great vision. And he, more importantly, he felt that they were unfazed by, like, loud noises and chaos and things like that around them. I'm guessing by, I guess, what, parks and, uh, you know, kids running around. Cities, being yeah. in the New York. I guess so, yeah, probably so. Probably. Huh. He was in Minnesota at this time, but still. He, He's like, he, oh, those New York pigeons, they're used to it. They've been <laughs> shot, like... 
I, that's my guess. I, it doesn't yeah. say not, not that I read, but probably, and he's probably not wrong. They were in, they were around yeah. people and crowds and you know, running kids and things like that. If they're yeah. conditioned in that way, I guess so. But if they're just born in quiet little Minnesota, well, he went and got city pigeons. Skitty. He got city pigeons. I'm assuming pigeons. No, no, that doesn't just, really. just city pigeons. City pigeon. So first, though, he needed to make a mechanical device for these avian devices, pigeons. He built a nose cone that he would attach to the tip of a missile. Inside the cone, he fixed three tiny electric screens in three little cockpits, and into which he would place a little pigeon pilot in each of the three cockpits with the screen in front of them. Okay, all this in a nose cone that he had attached to an explosive missile. Okay, bear with me. Wait, the pigeon is inside that? Is inside, the, three of them are. So okay. you have a nose cone, it has three compartments, Cockpits, he called them. He put a pigeon in each of the three compartments, and, and in front of that pigeon was a screen. Okay, an electrical, okay. electric screen? screen. I don't mm-hmm. know what that like. Yeah, like a like an LED, like a like a not LED, like a but TV a little screen? TV screen. Yeah, a little mini TV screen. Oh, okay. They didn't have TV. At sure, the they did. This is the mid 1940s. This is 1943, 44, or something yeah, like that. There. Yeah, they did. Cathode okay. ray tubes, yeah, mama. They did. they did. Okay. Just trust us, Gary. I trust you. They, they also, had, like, yeah, yeah, primitive, but yeah, yes, very primitive. But they didn't need to be all that great. How to get these natural avian pilots to guide bombs toward their targets, though, was still a question. So he said, I got an idea, said BF. He said, we'll project images onto the electronic screens that will portray some, like the the ground that the missile... (laughs) (laughs) Lily, no. You're a bad girl. You're a loud barker. This out. There she goes. She's excited. She's a very excitable Happy lady. Okay, ready? Yeah. Skinner would project images onto the, the electronic screens that would portray some of the ground that the missile was hurtling down towards. He thought that the you could train them to recognize the ground and the formation of the ground, the, the image of the ground that they were that they wanted to target with the bomb. So, you know, a munitions factory, let's say. So if they saw, if, this, if the screen was picking up a munitions factory below, they would recognize that as the target they wanted to respond to. He wanted the pigeons to respond to. Does that make sense? Yes. yes but then how did they right. then steer the missile towards yeah. it? That's what, that was the next part. I mean, so far, so good, but he still needed to, sure. exactly, he needed to steer it. So yeah. he thought, okay, when the pigeons see the target that they had been trained to recognize, they would peck the screen. Ah! And it was right there in front of them yeah. in the little compartments. They just start pecking the screen, right? Okay. When all three birds pecked at the same time, that would indicate that the target had been sighted. Again, it was almost a little bit like Meriwether's leech jury. A little bit. That predicted mm-hmm. storms. He thought there was kind of, I don't know, certainty in numbers. You got three in there. You don't rely on one. If they all three are pecking, we're on to something. <laughs> but you still had to aim the missile toward the target as the pigeons pecked away. So he said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. We'll attach cables to the pigeons' heads, right? That would in turn be attached to the missile's steering mechanism. I guess I'm no rudders, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't research that. Fins. Fins, maybe, sure. Pecks right in the center of the screen, steer the missile straight. Keep going, how are you going? If you peck to the left, it would have the missile veer to the left a little bit. If they peck to the right side of the, on the right side of the screen, they would have the missile veer a little bit to the right side of the screen until they centered on their target and then they'd peck the middle and yeah. go straight on into 
infinity and beyond. I mean, if you can train these little bitches to do that. He knew he could train his pigeons. He was a good pigeon trainer. Hmm. Uh, uh, maybe. However, how does this translate to a battlefield? By what blowing do you mean, things up. Girl? What do you mean? Yeah, remember, the cone is on the no, end of the missiles. Okay, who's training the pigeons on the fly? Oh, we'll get, no, on the fly. Well, not on you the train fly. before you put them in. You, you train them. You train them to recognize. Okay, here's a, a munitions fact here. Here's a whatever, and you train them to recognize that and to peck that when they see that image. No, I understand that, but okay. So, so today, some colonel decides he wants to bomb the munitions factory. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, the other colonel's going to decide he wants to bomb Hitler's castle. I don't know. Hitler's how, castle. How you, Is that a video game? <laughs> how do you train each pigeon? For a mean? different target. I, they have, they the targets have, aren't going to be no, the same all Yeah, they the have time. pigeon handlers. And they're all going to look yeah, yeah, different. And okay, in a week we're going to want to do this, so let's train some That's pigeons to I'm do saying. that in a week. How much Probably time does it through, take? And during, oh, in know. the middle of a war, you don't have a week. Pigeons are smart. You think, are they planning all of their bombings a week or so Or maybe ahead? they could just be used to bomb certain common things that were frequently bombed. How's that? Yeah. Something with smokestacks. I smoke guess we'll stacks. find out how successful this Endeavor. Yeah, went. I think you might be <laughs> thinking into it a little bit too much. But she does seem angry, doesn't she? I have problems Mad. with it. Yes, you oh, do. Oh, me okay. too. <laughs> so does mainly everyone with, mainly sticking pigeons in a missile. <laughs> That's my number one uh, issue. Trust with me, that it. was not the problem people had with it. Also, though. it seems expensive. Really? Really? Yeah. Compared to a missile? Yeah, I know. It it's seems a small fraction relatively of the cost, though, inexpensive. That missile you're exploding. I'm just, sure. It's just a oh, cone no, with three pigeons. pigeons are expensive. Little yeah. tiny screens. That's not yeah, bad. And some training time. Oh. Yeah, but at the time, that technology probably wasn't super cheap. I don't know. They make it themselves. You got cathode ray and it wasn't, They didn't get it retail. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least I don't think so. They didn't so, go to Radio Shack. No, they did not. So pecking and piloting, the pigeons would smash nose cone first into the target and uh-huh. blow up along with the explosive that they had guided. And so they were kind of like kamikaze pigeons, but they would help the good guys win the war. Uh-huh. Mom's fine with that. She's fine with that. <laughs> she's, she's just very skeptical, right? Well, no, guess what, I Carrie? am actually not fine with that. Oh, no. She's not at all fine with that. Although I, you were very pro-bird death earlier. Yeah, and, picking and choosing. And that's to save the lives this of is men true. This that is are true. doing something that they have to do. Carrie, this is to save the lives of six million Germany. Jews, Mom. That's true. Nazi Germany. I don't. Okay. I know. I, I have an issue with that. If there's ever like been war. a black and white war, that was the one. True. <laughs> so it turns out, Carrie, naysayer, skeptic, <laughs> that it worked. Who? Who said that? In reality, it, it did work. They did multiple Damn. demonstrations. B.F. Skinner did multiple de- demonstrations for Army Brass, and they worked quite well. Good job, pigeons. The pigeons would, they're in the nose cone, and they'd peck away, and they'd ignore them. That was the, they were hurtling through space. There was a lot of noise and rattling all around them. Yeah, didn't I'll phase bet. them at all, like he expected. They just pecked away well, when they saw the site. how does he know it didn't phase them? Well, because they, they kept still did pecking, their job. and they successfully pecked, well, and sure. accurately guided the missiles. So Maybe they were just feverishly Super pecking in panic, yeah. and they just happened to guide the right place. Oh no! Yeah, all, all luck. I mean, they were trained to keep the missiles on target, and they followed their training. I wonder how the hell you train that little bitch. So uh, so the pigeons won World War II. Is that what you're trying to say? Not exactly, because oh. military leaders, they just could not ever get comfortable with Project Pigeon, as it was called. <laughs> and eventually, before it was actually used in warfare, they killed the project, and they 
made B.F. Skinner very unhappy. He said, quote, our problem was no one would take us seriously. He was said to be pretty bitter about this when they pulled the plug on his project. Yeah, at least you got 25000 Skinner, be happy for that. <laughs> well, he probably yeah. spent it all on little TVs. Pigeons and TVs yeah. and things like that. <laughs> That's yeah, more than most <laughs> scientists ever get in their whole life. I know. What Skinner <laughs> did not money. know at the time was that more sophisticated electronic answers were already in development. Yeah. Those would soon allow for missile guidance systems that did not rely on things that pooped inside little cockpits. So he was, missile guidance would actually soon become a thing not too long after his little pigeon scheme. And so the, yeah. the military didn't think they really needed it. Your little pigeon scheme. Today, the nose cone pigeon prototype resides in the Smithsonian's American History Museum. Go check it out if you're in Washington, D.C. Skinner kept the pigeons that he had oh. trained and, they, and that mm. lived, apparently. I was going to say the ones that didn't blow to smithereens. Yeah. Over the years, actually, he would occasionally bring them out of retirement and see if they still had their targeting skills. He'd put them in front of, the, I guess, in the cockpit, I don't know, and, and put them in front of the little screens and see if they still did it, and they did. Even six years later, Skinner's pigeons still had their piloting skills intact. Huh, so you want to take what? Back what you said about pigeons not being very smart? I didn't say that. I said I don't like them. They're gross. They're rats of the sky. Not uh, a fan. But then you, you s- talked about how much smarter ravens and crows are. Absolutely. Wow. Ravens and crows would have said, this is a terrible idea. You don't... <laughs> they said, actually could we're not say that. So I'm you sorry. think ravens and crows can talk? I do. They, oh, okay. I do. They can. They clearly can, Carrie. Telepathically. Maybe Mom. you're not in tune, but some of us are. Crows can talk. Yeah, crows can talk. I want, a, I want a raven. Can I get a raven? No. You go on YouTube right I'll now. I'll call it Edgar Allen. Oh, my God. That's too obvious, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Just a bit. I'll call it Nevermore. No? Also Still on the nose, okay, but sorry. okay. I'll think of a name. Randy Raven. So I'll take that. It's true that we have laser-guided missiles today, but if one day we bomb ourselves into the Stone Age, maybe some future general can remember back to the pigeons, and it'll be a giant technological leap forward mm-hmm. in warfare. Who can say? And then we got leeches, and I hope we never need those parakeets for that. They'll just be our friends. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if hey. Yeah. That is the end of part one, folks. Hmm. Join us next time. Should I give him a little um, tidbit of yeah. what we're going to see? Tease we're gonna, it, Dean. We're going to talk about frogs. <gasps> we're going to talk about snails. Oh, oh my God. And we're going to talk about bats and dolphins. Oh, wow. And that last one is one that was a little bit, the outcome's not awesome. So, huh. but still, again, not going to be graphic. Okay. Hopefully it'll be interesting. Okay. That's Have it. Fun. Yeah, this went in a completely different direction than well, I thought. Well, I'm glad. It was That's go. why I, I wanted so. to say before. I, I mean, this is not going to be. This is this yeah. is humans using animals for yeah. fun and pleasure, but it's in you know. That sounded gross. That does sound gross, <laughs> but we must move along. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Have fun. Bye. Goodbye.